Hey, our passage today comes from James chapter 2, verse 14 through 19, if you want to turn there. If it's your first time, you have a device, uh, we're in the ESV version as always. I think I said this a few weeks ago, but um, man, passages like this are, they're hard for me and maybe for us as a church in general, given the tone of our church, which is we, we lean as we should, I believe, very heavily into the grace of God. And James is really trying to point out some things, not ignoring grace, not dismissing grace, not in contradiction to God's grace, but saying a Christian is supposed to look like something. It can't just be our words that define uh, who we are. And in fact, we don't really apply that with anything that we do in life, do we? It's not, you know, talk is cheap. It's about what we do with the words that we claim define who we are. But this is tough for me um, because I have a fear that we're all going to walk out of here feeling condemned, not convicted, but condemned and start trying to work out our salvation, thinking God must be unhappy if we're not applying our faith the way that James is instructing us to do. So I just want to start out by by saying that because I want the tone of this to, um, again, there, there's a time to lean, uh, you know, into grace and into truth. We're always trying to, to combine those two elements of what it is we're learning from the Lord in, in somewhat equal measure. Um, and this to me feels like it has, it can so easily tilt into truth without grace. So you can pray for me that I, I'm not too afraid of that and I'm not preaching out of fear. Um, I don't want to do that. Maybe you've been in a conversation before where at some point, man, you had to stop and say, can you just tell me what you're really trying to say, right? Someone's just, you, you feel like they're, they're trying to get to something and they won't just spit it out. Um, now the book of James, it, it's not doing that. It's not beating around the bush by any means. But today we're kind of reaching the plot of the story in some ways, kind of what James is really driving at, really his, his sort of his main point. In fact, a lot of pastors who preach James have actually titled the series uh, Faith That Works, right? Which is a great title uh, because it helps us understand how faith and good works combined are what give evidence of an authentic Christian faith. Um, now, the reason why I titled the series The Wisdom from Above, which you see behind me, is because wisdom tells us how to apply our faith by the good works that are meant to accompany it. So, man, if we are committed to living out the wisdom that comes from God that we find in his word, which has been poured into our hearts, Paul tells us in Romans, through Christ, we're going to listen to these words, Right? We're going to listen to these words. We're going to obey these words as we do the work that these words command. And so this morning, James begins breaking down the illusion of what we're calling this morning a said faith. And what I mean by that is that a said faith or a faith without good works is actually what we're going to see to be a dead, a defective, and even a demonic faith. James reminds us that an authentic Christian faith is one where actions follow one's beliefs. Let's pick up in verse 14 in chapter 2. And James says this, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. That's where we're going to end for this week, verses 14 through 19. So a said faith, according to James here, really is three things. It's a dead faith, it's a defective faith, and ultimately even a demonic faith. So the first thing that James is pointing out in verses 14 and 17 is that a said faith is a dead faith. It's not a saving faith at all. James is saying this, there are people who say, I believe, I have faith in Jesus Christ, but they lack any evidence of that faith by their works toward God and toward their neighbor. And the characteristics of a dead faith is that it is usually accompanied by words over works which makes it inoperable by nature. Here's what I mean by that. By way of illustration, there's, we have an old water pump, uh, Melissa and I, by our back porch, that the previous owners of our house, they, they restored it. It looks really cool. Um, they repainted it and they anchored it kind of down into this round slab of concrete where, where I guess where the old well would have been back in the day, I'm guessing, right? Um, but when people see it, um, their first question is always like, wait a minute, man, does this thing work? And of course it doesn't work. Uh, in fact, man, it looks like it works, but uh, man, you could pump that thing from now until Christmas day and not a drop of water is ever going to come out of it. It's decorative only. That's what the pump is at this point. And thank goodness, because I'm still gonna turn on that faucet. That's just where I'm at right now in 2020, right? But it's kind of like when we went to this bakery, me and Melissa went to this bakery in Cooperstown, New York last summer, we were driving through and we saw this bakery, man. And they had in the display window, they had the most some of the most amazing desserts I have ever seen. And if you know me, that means something, right? That means something to me. But it turned out as we got closer that they were only decorative. They were display only items plastic cinnamon rolls and donuts painted to look real in order to entice me in, right? You can imagine the letdown when I got that close and saw that I couldn't dig my teeth into those things, which is why I have a team of lawyers going after them right now for that kind of deception. But what James is doing right here is he's warning these churches, this letter that he's writing to these churches, he's warning them that someone can have words of faith without works of faith. It's the easiest thing in the world to do. We see it all the time with everything else. But the scary thing about a word-only faith is that what it isn't. It's not a sin-destroying repentance-filled, Jesus-loving, grace and mercy-given faith. That's what it's not. It's not a real faith. A said faith only 
is a dead faith. Now, that doesn't mean that works prove you're saved. I'm going to say that a few times to make sure that we're clear on that. We need to be careful about that. But words without works tell you something about the authenticity of the words, right? I mean, this is not complicated when we apply it to anything else. People can talk a big game. But until they deliver on their words, we don't know whether to believe what they're saying is true, right? Like when I click the word delivery on my Domino's pizza order, they authenticate that they're a pizza delivery company when the delivery driver knocks on my door with my pizza and breadsticks and cinnamon bread twists. But if the driver never shows up, it doesn't matter that they say they're a delivery pizza company. The same can be said for those with a said faith only. Look what it says in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Like, you know, we're just a little bit different. We've just sort of received, we just live out this faith a little bit differently. I'm a guy that has it in here. You're a guy that has it in here and in here. Like, we're still cool. But James says, show me your faith apart from your works. How? And he says, but I will show you my faith by my works. So a said faith, according to James here, without the evidence of works, is a dead faith. Verse 17, faith by itself after one claims to be a believer, if it does not have works, is dead. It can also be a defective faith. It can be good for nothing. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that, James is telling us? So not only is a said faith a dead faith, but it's also a defective faith. And James gives us an example here of what he means. If we see someone who is poorly clothed, who lacks food, are two, by the way, basic requirements just to live, and we simply send this person away with warm wishes without giving them what they need, James asks the question, he says, what good is it? What practical good is that? In verse 16, that's what he's telling us. Providing for people's needs is how we practice our faith. It's one of the ways that we practice our faith. In other words, when the Spirit of God lives inside of you and me, when he lives inside of us, we are moved the same way that Jesus is moved towards people. Like when he had compassion on the crowd because they had been with him three days and had nothing to eat. What did Jesus do in Mark 8 verse 2? He fed them. He didn't just preach the gospel to them, but he also fed them. Or in Mark uh, chapter 1, verse 40, when it says, A leper came to Jesus, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. And then it says, Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will, I'm willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. It's a defective faith that only says, good luck with that. 
1 John 3:17 reminds us it says, "But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him." John asks this question. He says, "How does God's love abide in him?" And then he says, "Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth." Now, it goes without saying that we can't help everybody with their tangible needs, but both John and James are talking about people that you do come in contact with, that God has brought into either our fellowship or to your block or to your neighborhood or to your job place or to your school or to your places of influence or the places where you frequent. So they're talking about the people that you do come in contact with because it's no accident that God has brought those people your way. And people, by the way, you should be helping because your heart is so moved with compassion by the Spirit to help them, right? Otherwise, James says, what good is the faith you claim to have? What good is the good news that you claim exists in your heart for the love that Jesus has that has saved you and is sanctifying you? I have this treadmill in my basement. And uh, in February, I started running on it again. And again, I bought this thing years ago. There it is, right? Um, and, you know, when I, when I powered it back up in February after, I don't know, 14 years um, or whenever the last time I bought it and used it, uh, I was really happy because it still worked. Because again, confession, I had barely used it since I bought it so many years ago. But I was thinking about it, and I don't think about my treadmill often. In fact, I try not to think about my treadmill as much as possible. But if it just sits there unused, it doesn't really matter if it even works or not, does it? I didn't know if it was going to work when I clicked the on button. But either way, if I don't plan on using it, what's the difference? If it's usable, if it powers on or not. It might as well be defective if it's never being used. You would just say, what good is it if it just sits there? A said faith is a dead and defective faith when it's not moved with the compassion of Jesus to help care for others. Philippians 2, 4, Paul writes, he says, hey, let each of you look not only to his own interests, Right? So Paul is saying, hey, you know, we don't have a hard time looking to our own interests, but he's actually saying it's okay to look to your own interests, to take, to take care of the needs that you have. But he said, don't only look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is what he says here, though. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, which is to look to the interests of others. This is baseline for us, Right? as the church. This is baseline faith in Jesus. This is basic Christianity. This is how a community of Christ shows their authenticity. It shows that they don't just talk a big game, right? This is how we know that the signature of Christ written on our hearts is not a forgery, but it's the real article. Because, and, and here's our final point this morning, even the demons believe. So a said faith is a dead faith. It's a defective faith. And now James tells us 
is even in some ways, and we'll tease this out, a demonic faith because even the demons believe. Verse 18. Verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well, he says. But even the demons believe and shudder, James tells us. So let's make sure that we're, we're clear on something here. James affirms the importance of an intellectual belief in God, knowing God's word, being able to affirm with our mind the things that we believe are true about God. It matters. Our mind matters. It matters what we believe. It matters that we are able to say and articulate what we believe about who God is and how the gospel has saved us and changed us. Romans 10, 9, Paul said, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. So we need to love God with our minds by believing, receiving, and knowing his words. But here's what James is saying. He's saying, you believe that God is one. You believe this truth from scripture. And you know what? You do well, he said. You do well by believing in your mind the things that are true in God's word. But then he makes one of the most shocking and I think sobering statements in all of scripture, which is that even the demons believe. So slow your roll about this belief that doesn't work itself out and works and quit acting like that is the thing that qualifies you. Just this intellectual belief. He said, even the demons believe and they shudder. In other words, they're frightened. They repel back because of their belief. So let's unpack this a little bit in the hope that we become a little more humbled and hopefully a little more sobered. First off, demons or fallen angelic beings they believe what Christians believe. Have you ever thought about that? You all have something in common with demons. Demons know good doctrine. For example, it was part of Satan's plan all through the Old Testament to try and prevent the birth of Jesus from happening, right? Which means Satan believed God when he told Adam and Eve that he had a plan for redemption after they fell. That's a strange thing to sort of get our heads wrapped around, right? And then you go to the New Testament when Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness. And what did he do? Well, he used and he twisted scripture in an attempt to get him to sin in, over, in, in order to overthrow his journey to the cross. Satan knows God's truth. Satan can quote scripture, but he doesn't have a true faith. So first off, de demons believe what Christians believe. Secondly, the spirit world, they shudder. Demons shudder. They bristle at the words and work of Jesus. They have an understanding of the power of Jesus that ultimately fills them with dread and fear because it's not accompanied by faith. Now, that's just sobering for us because it means that you can sit in a church for years and years and you can know all kinds of scripture and you can know all kinds of Bible stories and you can articulate the gospel. You can quote some of the creeds. If you grew up in a church that had that as a tradition, you can sing worship songs. You can sit down, you can pray with your brothers and sisters. 
The words that come out of your mouth can make it appear like you are a brother or a sister that knows God and knows his word. When in fact, you might have a heart that's far from him. Remember when Jesus said that about the religious leaders? He said, you speak of me, you praise me with your lips. He said, but your heart is not with me. He said, your heart is far from me. You can all front is what James is saying. You can all talk the talk, but if it's not evidenced by the walk, then something may be wrong. We remember in Acts 15, when the seven unbelieving sons of this Jewish high priest named Sceva, they tried to cast out an evil spirit. We went through that when we went through Acts, right? The spirit speaks to these dudes and says, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? So this evil spirit knew the Jesus that this son of a high priest claims he knew but didn't. And it didn't go well for that dude afterwards when those demons attacked him. We also remember in Mark 5 when Jesus was getting ready to heal demon-possessed man and the demons begged Jesus to send them into the herd of pigs. Remember that famous story in the, in the herd like uh, just takes off and falls over the cliff and into the ocean. The demons believe that Jesus is who he says he is and it makes them shudder when they consider his power and glory and dominion over all things. So what James is saying is that you can believe, you can even shudder, but that doesn't mean your faith is anything other than dead and defective and even demonic-like. If there's nothing about it that resembles the work of Jesus Christ, who by the way is the founder and perfecter of those whose faith has been made real and been made authentic by him. Right? So what these passages do for us right now is they call for self-examination. Self-examination. The Bible's always calling us to self-examination. But in particular, this passage really calls us to kind of pull back and do some of that diagnostic work in our hearts. The first point I want to make in terms of self-examination is this, and it comes by way of question, is, is your faith one of word? or of words and works. So is your faith one of just words or of words and works? Gotta ask that question. James doesn't say words don't matter, right? The famous, uh, there's a famous quote by this, uh, this old saint called Saint uh, Francis of Assisi where he said, preach the gospel and occasionally use words. And, and it sounds good and, and part of it is true. We want our life to be an offering like we're going to sing um, we wanted to reflect something of the nature and the work of Christ. And so in that way, it can't just be all words. He's right. But we also have to use words. Uh, if we didn't have to use words, I, I'm literally out of a job. And this is my last sermon. Um, so it's important that we use words. We are given a book of words that tell us everything God wanted us to know about himself and about Jesus that we could comprehend as frail and fragile human beings. So words matter. Words teach us how to put our words to work. 
So the words of this book teach us how to put the words to work. What James is describing is a faith that is decorative. It's a display-only type of faith. If this concerns you this morning, praise God. What a great thing. What a great thing that God's word is alive in you enough to convict and concern you to that level. It also might mean that you don't have an authentic faith in Jesus. It may mean, though, that you do, and the cares of this world are choking out some of the faith that you have. That's why it's good to examine if your faith is one of words or of words and works. Secondly, is your heart moved by the heart of Jesus? Because look, y'all can just jump out there and start giving to a bunch of Christmas charities, right? You can just frantically try to prove that, oh, my faith is a genuine article. I'm gonna get out there, I'm getting it done and not a display only model of Christianity like you're describing, Ronnie, that's not me. But that doesn't mean your heart has been moved like the heart of Jesus. In fact, listen to this, doing what I just described can be further evidence that you have a dead and a defective faith. In other words, our hands don't always match our heart. We want our heart to be moved first by the heart of Jesus so that our hands become an authentic representation of his love, his compassion, his care for others. How do we know the difference? Well, I might not be able to detect it in you, but you will know it. You'll know it by a joy-filled heart that, listen, increasingly imitates the love and the kindness and the compassion and the grace and mercy of Jesus. Don't forget about the word increasingly, right? Because our heart ebbs and flows. Paul said in Philippians 1.9, he said, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve of what is excellent and so be pure and blameless by the day for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. What Paul is, what Paul is praying for the Philippians is that all of these ways that Jesus has increased his love and compassion and care in their hearts, that it would just progress. So when we talk about something progressing, it means it has somewhere to go. So it means all of us have this love and this care and this compassion, this hands work of Jesus to just continue to grow in us. And a lot of times at different paces, depending on who we are. So the question then for us is, is our heart moved by the heart of Jesus? Is our love abounding more and more for others? As, as Christ's love abounds more and more in our own heart. And then finally, are you mindful are you intentional to devote yourself to good works? Is it something that's a part of the intentionality of your life and your faith? We want to be careful to remember that God is growing us in both word and works. So as we grow deeper in the love of Christ, in the knowledge of his word, we will also grow deeper in our desire to want to be a reflection of that word by our works, right? Ronnie, what if I just don't feel like it? You're up there and you keep talking 
and nothing is moving in me. I know. I can't tell you how many sermons I've sat through and experienced that. Here's what I know when we don't feel something is we go before the one who created our feelings and our emotions and we ask him to do what we can't conjure up with any sort of magic tricks. When you go before the Lord and you ask him for something that is absolutely 100%, no questions asked, his will for your life, he grants those things. When you go before the Lord and you say, man, I, Lord, I, 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 I am more of a word-only faith person right now. I, I don't know that I can see a lot of evidence in, you know, in, in living this out authentically with good works. Lord, can you change my heart? Can you make me aware? Can you make me even hyper-aware of the people around me that I need to be sharing and be a reflection of the gospel to, and maybe even taking care of needs that you've given me the ability to do. You know what's amazing is God will do that. It's amazing because God's going to answer that prayer. I'm telling you right now that God will answer that prayer. And all of a sudden your eyes will be open to things that you didn't notice before. Like your heart is gonna be drawn and pumping directionally towards, way, towards places that it didn't before, towards people that it didn't before. Why? Because you went to God, by the way, who is the author and the perfecter and the founder and the provider and the sustainer of your faith. And you're just saying, increase my faith, Jesus. And when you ask Jesus to increase your faith, he's not gonna say, you know what, man, I'm gonna have to think about that. I got a meeting later on with the Holy Spirit and with God and we'll discuss the possibilities of that. Maybe we'll put together a plan. He's gonna do it. He's gonna do it. So we pray for those things. So where there is a lack of feeling and emotion, we pray for God to fill that void. And praise God that he does. We just want to be a more compassionate and caring church, you know? I want to be a more compassionate and caring pastor. But let's be warned of the danger that exists for those who claim an, an intellectual belief in the words of Jesus while lacking the works of Jesus. If you're a, a covenant member of substance, how is being a covenant member of substance felt by your brothers and sisters? Do they feel it? Do they feel your commitment and your words of faith to the Lord, do they feel that? Is that something that they know about you? Let me ask it like this. Is Ashland any better because we're here? Is Ashland any better because this church exists right here? We always have to be asking that question. I think Ashland is better because we're here. But we have to keep asking that question in humility and with sobriety, don't we? Because we can easily turn into a people that are just able to say a lot of good things, think we have great doctrine, and in reality, nobody feels the effect of the faith that we claim to have. There's so much hope and encouragement because as we are here and as we understand all those areas that we're deficient in, we have Jesus who is standing 
right here in our presence saying, I'm gonna fill in those gaps. I'm gonna fill in those holes. I just want you to come to me with humility and with honesty and let me fill those places where you don't feel. Let me fill those areas where, man, you're, you're just a little unpracticed in. Let, let, let me fill those places where you just, you, you lack a little care. Let me fill those holes of your faith. That's what Jesus does for us. And that's why our, our said faith doesn't have to be dead. It doesn't have to be defective. It doesn't have to have more in common with the way demons believe but it can be an active and an alive faith, which is actually what will bring you the most joy. Why? Because it's what brought Jesus the most joy. Because he wasn't somebody who just said, I'm gonna sacrifice myself for these people. But he, he acted the miracle of the cross for us. That's our hope. And with Christ and his spirit living inside of us, we have the very spirit of God in us that enables us without condemnation, without thinking we're working our way to God to live out our faith with joy and see the lives of people around us change because we believed and not only believed, but lived out the very words that have resurrected our souls. It's the best news ever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for reminding us, pulling us in, calling us to an authentic faith, not just a said faith. We're people who can speak, we can get clever with our words, we can learn things, we can be easily deceived and fooled into thinking something about ourselves that isn't true because it's not being truly lived out. So God, we're all in different places with that. And so we need your intervention as a church so that we're a church that lives out our faith. It's not just words, but it's words and works. And Lord, help us to understand our tendency towards thinking that you love us more when we're working harder and those things that can be condemning and can exhaust us, Lord, help, help us understand the truth of that, that all this comes by your grace and your mercy and that you've actually given us the freedom to do these things with joy because of what's been earned for us. So we do because of what's been done. We give our lives as an offering because the life of Christ was offered to us. And Lord, in whatever ways that we are struggling with that truth or we haven't embraced that truth, Lord, I pray that you would speak to those this morning that during this next song might need to just pray the most simple of prayers and say, oh God, I don't wanna have a said faith and I think maybe my faith has just been that, but I want a real and authentic faith I want to believe your words. I want to live out your words and I want those words to live out inside of me. And so Lord, I pray that for anybody that finds himself in that place, you would meet them there. And Lord, your spirit would just descend on them and pour into their hearts and they'd be drawn to you through repentance and real faith in your work on the cross. 
So Lord, thank you, God, that we're a church that um, has and continues to live out their faith in the kindness and in the care and the compassion that we show one another and our community. I pray that that would increase as you increase uh, our faith together. And we thank you that you will answer that prayer. Um, And we're grateful um, that we have this hope this morning uh, on November 15th, 2020, in a year um, that we have not been able to make heads or tails of. But you are the one that provides us with our stability and our hope. So thank you for that, Lord. And I pray that you would hear the words of this song that we sing to you and you would fill us with joy, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.